0: Welcome to our discussion segment on the Arab Revolt. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. John, my compliments to you for the pronunciations of all the different names. It was very impressive.
1: <laughs> I did my best. Arabic speakers could would probably disagree with you, but I did my best.
0: No, it was impressive. I have not heard this part of World War One history in the level of detail that you described. So mm. it's very interesting because, to your point in the podcast, we talk about what happened in the actual battles in the European theater, not what happened across the entire world. Yeah. And in this particular part of the world, is so interesting.
1: Agreed. Not just because of T.E. Lawrence, but of all the major figures in there. There's, there's so much to talk about as far as heroism and just the qualities of leadership that they showed. So yeah, it was a fun episode to write and looking forward to a good discussion here. Yeah, absolutely. So my first question is,
0: was it a foregone conclusion that the Ottoman Empire was going to fall at some point? It, without World War I, was that something that everyone was already expecting?
1: Yes. World War I kind of accelerated it, but all of the indicators of societal collapse were there and had been for about a century and a half. Okay. It was mostly Ottoman military power that kept the Turks in power across this vast but slowly shrinking empire. All right, interesting. And once that's gone, once that's destroyed in World War I – There's not much left.
0: Taking a step back and looking beyond the Ottoman Empire, is that a natural occurrence in history? Because we think about the great empires decaying over time. Mm -hmm. Is that common? And what are some of the reasons why this is consistently happening to those larger empires?
1: It is, especially with a supernational empire. So when you have one ethnic group that's in charge, another great example, really from the same period, is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You had one ethnicity, the Austrians, who are ethnically German controlling a vast patchwork of ethnic minorities who are not treated the same legally as the German-Austrians. So you need military power, and you need police power, you need state power to be able to exercise that kind of control and make sure that ethnic minorities are suppressed. So once that goes away, as it did in World War I in Russia, in Austria, in Ottoman Turkey, and. At other moments in history, when that power goes away through military defeat, that is the primary reason why multi-ethnic empires come apart.
0: So World War One then, was just the catalyst for what was already going to happen. It was kind of an probably, accelerant.
1: Probably going to happen. Yes, it was an accelerant. Okay.
0: So, when, when the Arab revolt was conceived, it was in that vein. It was, okay, this Ottoman Empire is now, uh, I don't want to say right for regime change, but, mm-hmm. but essentially it really was. so. Yeah, yeah. There was an opportunity there for this other group to say that the Ottomans are now vulnerable enough for us to attack. But they couldn't do that without international support. Correct. correct? And you outlined in the podcast extremely well like who supported them and why. Is there a reason why those allies were picked over others? Was it just because they were world powers, or was that, I'll call it, a convenience of World War I occurring?
1: Well, they were the only ones who were offering help. Okay. And they were the global military superpowers, Britain and France were. They were the only ones who had globe-spanning empires. Germany had some colonies, but not enough to offer that kind of support. Plus, they're already fighting, and they're helping the Ottomans. They're on the same side as the Ottomans, so they're not going to help the Arab revolt. So Britain and France... They were really the only ones who could offer that kind of assistance. The United States at this stage is not interested. Right. The Spanish, the Portuguese, the other European powers who do have international positions are not in a place militarily or financially where they can support this. So you have the combination of they're the only ones really who have an interest in this, and they're the only ones who have an ability in supporting the Arab revolt.
0: So you're not aware of any other country, what would be considered a large country at the time, who is part of World War One that extended any interest or or any help?
1: The only other one would be the Russians. Okay. But geography is going to be a problem for them because they are north of the Ottoman Empire and the Arab portions of the Empire are to the south. So any Russian aid would have to get through either independent and very anti-Russian Persia or would have to go through Anatolia and Turkey. Okay. And obviously, the Ottomans aren't going to let that happen.
0: Right. Are you aware of any French liaisons who were assigned to that same area of the world? So we talked about
1: T.E. Lawrence, but did he have a French counterpart? He did. And there are dozens of European military advisors with the various tribal groups all across, not just the Hejaz, but across Arabia. But I don't know that any French advisors had anything like the impact, the influence, or really the publicity of someone like T E Lawrence.
0: Interesting. Because Why? he had
1: such a such a unique personality and he was frankly so good at it. Uh. at negotiating and bringing these tribal leaders into the revolt. Is that what set him apart truly or was it a combination of things? And if it was a
0: combination it was, what it what, was, what were the, those things?
1: It was his first and foremost I think it was his respect of Arab culture as I said several times in the podcast at a time when white European imperial powers did not treat non-white colonial peoples with anything approaching respect. He did. So that endears him specifically to Auda al-Butaï and to Faisal and to King Hussein. Then you have his very kind of unique quirky personality, which we'll talk more about here in a minute, where he didn't really care. Kind of like many of the people we've talked about this season, who gets the credit? He had a job to do, and he was just going to buckle down and do it. His job was to bring every Arab group that he found into the revolt. He was going to offer them money. He was going to offer them whatever they needed to get them to put aside their historic tribal differences with other neighboring, whether Bedouin or more sedentary groups. Put that aside, focus on the task, which is get the Ottomans out of here and get yourselves an independent country. Okay, and And then you also have Churchill's hailing of him in the interwar years and then in World War II that really raised his popularity after he had died to international status.
0: What went into his respect for everyone? So thinking about his approach, how you said he didn't care about titles, he didn't care about your position. Mm-hmm. Was it his like his past and studying history? Was it a combination of that and his upbringing? Like what, what made him who he was?
1: It's been a while since I've read a full biography of him. I was pulling bits and pieces from a couple books that I had to write this, so I'm going to do my best to answer that question. I think you have several factors at work, obviously. One, he was an illegitimate child, and yet he was able to get access through wealthy patrons of the family to the upper echelons of British education. He went to Jesus College, Oxford. Right there, he is going to feel kind of out of step with everyone else who's at Oxford, because at this time, even more so than today, Oxford is the university that you go to if you want to go anywhere. That in Cambridge, but he was at Oxford. So he's always feeling a bit different, a bit outside the mainstream of British society. Then you have his personal life and his own proclivities that also sets him a little bit apart. And then you have his depth of understanding about the past. He trained as an archaeologist. So he understands that whatever skin color you have, we are all when they dig up your bones, fundamentally human. Yeah. And I think I remember I'm I'm pretty sure this was his writing and not someone interpreting him. He wrote something to that effect that it doesn't matter in a thousand years whether you were British or French or German or Egyptian or Arab or Turkish. We're all human beings. Mm. That's going to give him a very different perspective.
0: So I'm hearing, John, from you that a knowledge of history brings a good perspective. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with you. Yeah,
1: Isn't that kind of why we do this podcast? Exactly
0: why. (laughs) Absolutely why. Thinking through his approach when he was on the ground, actually, I'll call it in the trenches, mm-hmm. pardon the pun. No
1: trenches in, the, yeah, in this right, part of right, the war, right. but yeah.
0: When he was serving on the ground, uh, obviously, he had the the personality and approach that was very, very uh, helpful and allowed him to accomplish his objectives. Thinking about his battlefield experience. So he was a trained officer. He had knowledge of combat tactics. He had, he had that background. Did he actually employ that? Were the strategies used in the battles that he was a part of, did they come from him? Did he speak in to them, or was he merely someone who was
1: part of the engagements? He was more, he did engage in some strategic discussions. I don't know to what level. He was more involved with logistics, which for those who don't know is how you get the supplies and equipment and ammunition and firearms and everything that a soldier needs into his hand at the right place at the right time for A successful military engagement for a victory. He was very involved in that. He he spent a lot of his time working with General Allenby and the British officials in Egypt to get supplies and money to the Arabs through various land and sea routes before the capture of Aqaba, which opens a direct route into the Hejaz from Egypt. So his experience in battle, he was a trained officer, but he didn't, I don't believe he saw much combat before going into the desert. And so his experience is much more from books, but it's mostly he's learning about desert warfare, and he's learning very, very quickly. And he's learning about how in the desert, logistics becomes even more important than in really any other terrain except for jungle. Deserts are the second worst geography for any kind of battle after a jungle. And so you've got to have not just ammunition and guns and airplanes and field artillery, but water and food. And how do you transport it? There are no roads, so you need to have horses and camels and donkeys and mules and all of that. That's where he really brings his skills and knowledge to the Arab revolt.
0: Was he aware of the agreement that Great Britain and France had struck? The Sykes-Picot agreement? Yes. Was he aware of that when he was
1: working uh, on the front lines? I don't believe he was. I believe Sykes-Picot remained secret until the Paris Peace Conference where the Treaty of Versailles and the other treaties were finally drafted and released.
0: So is there a chance that he was making promises to these Arab leaders oh, at the time? That oh, he was 100%. He could not make good on but he wasn't aware of this treaty.
1: Yes, and very few people that I'm aware of in the upper echelons of Arab leadership blamed him. Okay. They blamed Mark Sykes, Francois Picot and the British and French governments they represented.
0: How does that happen? How do two governments <laughs> decide arbitrarily, okay, once this conflict is over, we're going to carve up this particular part of the world.
1: I mean, that's what governments have done throughout history, really up until the Second World War. When we win, we get to decide what we're going to take. When you beat an enemy, you get to do what you want to him. Okay.
0: It's just interesting to me that several people in a room can decide the fate of oh, yeah. you know, countless individuals.
1: Yep. Uh, just
0: well, sometimes be- <laughs> on a whim.
1: We here in the United States do that quite regularly after World War II. Uh,
0: totally, Korea, and, Vietnam, uh, not in support Afghanistan, of yeah, Iraq. Yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, we have not learned from that particular bit of history. It, we'll just we'll just go into a country and knock over their leader, and then it'll be fine. Yeah,
0: it is interesting that the only land we've held on to as a result of a lot of conflict is to bury our dead. That is an interesting fact, yep. though. It's not been a moment of conquest. It's That's been, true. You know. So going back to T. Lawrence, how did he take it? when he
1: realized that this agreement
0: or this treaty was in place and there wasn't anything he could do about it. Not what well. happened
1: what happened to his alliances? Well, that's why he went back to Britain. He didn't stay in Egypt or in the Middle East. He kind of washed his hands of it and said, Well, I've done what I can. I did my job. People with far more experience, far more authority, and a far higher pay grade have chosen to cast my work into the dirt. I'll go home.
0: I once saw this I don't know if it was a meme, but it showed the different intricacies of World War One and what caused it and the families involved, yeah. and it's pretty complex. And you addressed that in an earlier, I think it was in season one, yeah, it was. And, and you spent a lot of time detailing that complexity. Yeah, we didn't really even get to the war until the second half of that right. episode. Yeah. Right, it was so intricate. So thinking about that, the world that he left when he went into combat as a liaison, The world that he returned to was entirely different. Are you
1: talking about when he left Egypt to go into the Middle East, or when he left Britain to go Mm -hmm. into the colonies and work? When he left Great Britain to go into the colonies,
0: because it it was the end of the Edwardian era, so a lot of things have changed at that point. What did he return to? And you talked about in the
1: podcast that he was received well when he Mm -hmm. came back home. What was that like? He well, the world he came back to was fundamentally, in every way, different because Great Britain was a different country. It had lost at least a million souls killed, wounded, or missing in the First World War. You have a completely new attitude about fighting over there, the attitude that crystallized around two words, never again. You see the beginnings of the appeasement movement that will culminate 20 years later with the appeasement of Hitler. You also see an initial economic downturn that's going to make life really difficult. Now, that goes away in 1920, 1921. But the early months and years in Great Britain, and generally after World War I, are pretty tough. For Lawrence, there were journalists who were kind of following along with his exploits. They would go see him periodically when he was in the Hejaz and out on campaign with Faisal and his troops. And they're reporting all this stuff back, so he comes home and he is granted a hero's welcome. So he doesn't really experience much of the hardship and privation and depression Outwardly, that so many of his fellow veterans did, because everyone wanted to talk to him, everyone wanted to hear his stories, but he very much did not want to kind of open up to people like that. The opening scene in the 1962 film Lawrence of Arabia starts with people leaving his funeral at Saint Paul's Cathedral. You have this reporter going up and asking General Allenby, asking other colonial officials, you know, can you give us a few words about Lawrence? And they were all saying. didn't really know him. He never wanted to let anybody into his own personal life because of, I think, a lot of demons. So right there, that's going to build kind of a, a wall between him and the rest of the world that is dealing with the fantastic changes that are happening. And a lot of it really doesn't get in. It doesn't seem to affect him all that much, based on his writings, based on the accounts of people who knew him. He just kind of, again, put his head down, did his work. He worked at the colonial office for a couple of years and then finally said, I'm out. I'm going to leave the army, join the RAF, get kicked out because he joined under a fake name because he didn't want all the publicity. Rejoins a couple, I think, a couple years later and spends the rest of his life driving fast cars and fast boats and fast motorcycles and fast planes. Well, wow. it was not a happy life. For him, it didn't seem really, like he it. really suffered. It,
0: it didn't seem like it, and, and, and I want to come back to that. Yeah. So that's the world that he returned to when he went back to Great Britain. What did he leave behind? How did the Middle Eastern culture change after World War One as a result of it being carved up? Yeah. And also just the the world changes that happen after a calamity.
1: Well, the world changes are best summarized in the fact that there's a Second World War twenty years later. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked yeah. about a lot of that. Specific to the Middle East, you have a tremendous amount of resentment towards
0: I Westerners, can't imagine why towards, I, I can't... towards white
1: Europeans and white people more generally. The borders of the new Arab countries that are being created in the mandate system are they're very clearly drawn around oil fields because oil has become a major strategic resource during the First World War. Will be even more so in the Second World War, and you start to see people being elevated to leadership positions who are wildly unqualified in every way. The best example, I think, is Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, the new leader of Saudi Arabia, who the British allowed to take over the country when King Hussein said, I'm not signing your Balfour Declaration. I don't care what you do to me. Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, possibly one of the most corrupt human beings of the entire 20th century, had no concern for his people, no concern for their welfare, no concern for anything other than his own personal power and wealth and status and lifestyle. And it is his, I believe, grandson or great-grandson who's the king of Saudi Arabia today. Mm. Further north in Palestine, of course, you have the mandate of Palestine that's created, that is ethnically majority Arab. You get some Jewish emigration during the interwar years. And then, of course, after World War II, there's the immediate push to fulfill the Balfour Declaration and create a Jewish homeland, culminating in 1948 with the creation of Israel. That's going to generate, you know, just a tiny bit of conflict. In Jordan, Jordan's probably the best example of a country that successfully navigates the transition from mandate-slash-colony to independent kingdom. They do have some struggles, but King Hussein's descendants still sit on that throne. Iraq, of course, has been a disaster forever, and same with Syria and Lebanon. It's the beginnings of the political unrest, not the religious unrest, because that preexisted the mandate system by centuries, but the political unrest that continues to today. You can trace the Syrian civil war back to this, everything that's happened in Iraq over the last 30 years back to this, Saudi Arabia and its war against Yemen, all of it can be traced back to this. Interesting. Now, would it have been better if the Arabs had been given immediate independence and and national freedom? I don't know. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I always side with that. (laughs) With with letting people control their own destinies? Yeah, 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 for sure. We probably wouldn't have a Jewish homeland today. Yeah. Because you can't imagine an independent Palestinian government saying, sure, we'll let you carve our country up.
0: Well, in the podcast, you talked about how there was a willingness from one individual for that until the
1: deal was, was Well, struck. yeah, but a homeland is different than a politically independent okay. state. That, I, okay. I don't think Faisal or anyone else wanted the Jews to be able to have their own country. Yeah, they can live here according to Islamic and Arab guidelines, sure. guidelines okay. laws, customs, okay. the Sharia, all of that.
0: That's interesting. It's a mess.
1: It's an absolute yeah. mess what imperialism gives you. It's not unique to the Middle East. Look at Africa. The entire continent of Africa is one giant warning sign against militaristic imperialism.
0: Yeah. So going back to T. Lawrence, and you spoke about this briefly in the podcast, just about some of his personal demons, and I wanted to dive into that a little bit. What was he going through? Why was he so, I don't know, sad? It wasn't was necessarily going on?
1: that he was sad. He was, he was almost certainly a masochist he enjoyed physical pain you see this portrayed in the film in a very kind of restrained hollywood of the 1960s way where he'll put out matches by just grabbing them he you know he basically he says when somebody comments he's like that must hurt and he goes yes the trick is not to mind that it hurts that pervades not just his you know everyday life it gets into his personal life he was probably either gay or bisexual. We're not really sure about his sexuality there, but it was definitely not what back then would be considered normal or appropriate. That's going to lead to some social ostracism. His friendships and relationships with women were almost always train wrecks that ended with scandalous reports in newspapers. He had very few friends back home. He connected more with people from a different culture, from a different world, really. But even then— you know, not not really ever willing to let anyone in. Okay, so I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, but that yeah, was, it does. Yeah. yeah, he just had a, he had a lot going on in his life,
0: and it's interesting that. He was—I don't want to say he was the exact opposite when he was out in the field, but it seemed like he had it together when he was out in the field. Is oh, that? he
1: always—he always appeared to have it together. He was—he was, okay. he was so, never so, so, outwardly.
0: So there was a distinction between what oh, he yes. projected and what how he actually oh, yes. was. He okay. was
1: always switched on in terms of his his outward personality and who he needed to be in that moment.
0: Yeah, it's interesting and sad. I yeah, it I, is. I, it's I, very sad. I, I had not heard that.
1: Yeah. Have you seen Lawrence of Arabia? I have not. You need to watch it. It's it's a fantastic <laughs> movie.
0: Yeah, you. on that note, you made it sound like in the podcast that it's it's definitely portrayed in a bad – like he's portrayed in a bad light in the film.
1: No, no, he's not. Um, Auda Abutai, who was one of his friends and associates in the revolt. Okay. He's the one whose descendants sued because he's portrayed very much being motivated only by money. But he was a passionate Arab nationalist. But the stereotype, sadly, that persisted even into the 1960s is – Semitic peoples, whether Jews or Arabs, you know, they only care about money. And so the Western filmmakers chose to have that portrayal. And it just so outraged his descendants. I think it was his grandchildren. I can't blame them. Yeah. Oh, Oh absolutely. It was also, it's also controversial because guess who played King Faisal? Who? Alec Guinness in brownface. Oh no! And that he does a good job. He has a he has a good accent, but still. Oh yeah, you 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 watch it and it's like oh, there's Obi Wan, there's Colonel what's his name from Bridge on the River Kwai in Arab robes and darkened skin, and yeah, it's it's that's pretty awful based on on the standards of today. You're just like oh. Okay. It's not quite John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. Correct. but <laughs> That's it, immediately what it's, I thought of when you set yeah. that up. I was like, I'm uh, yeah. envisioning a John Wayne type playing no, Genghis he's, Khan. No, he's, he's a better actor than John Wayne. Not that John Wayne is a bad actor, but Alec Guinness is better. He's light years ahead. It's still, Peter O'Toole does a tremendous job playing Lawrence. It's, it's a really, really good movie. Yeah. So I would recommend it. It's a little long. It's, I think, three and a half, four hours. It's yeah, I remember long. that. But yeah, one I would recommend. So I have
0: one more question, but first a quick note. This is usually where we include audience questions, uh, where I ask them of you or you of me. We had to record a little earlier this week, so please still send in your questions. If we receive any after the recording has been completed, we will answer them in the next discussion.
1: Yep. We love those questions, so please do do send them to us. Apologies. It was a, a family emergency. I've had to push up our schedule.
0: So, John, final question. You laid out the effects of the Arab Revolt, and we've seen uh, how it's changed history. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's fairly clear. Thinking about it from a contextual standpoint for today, besides the historical lessons that we learn from how it shaped history, what are some other takeaways our audience w- would have as, as a result of learning this?
1: I think certainly the glaringly obvious ones are the importance of respect for People, regardless of their race, background, economic status, et cetera. Lawrence, more than a lot of people. And there were others. I don't want to make it sound like Lawrence was the only person living in the 19-teens and 1920s who was doing this. But Lawrence is a great example of how you should treat people from different cultures, different backgrounds, et And then the importance of knowing your history and being able to look for those markers that might say tell you, hey, maybe this is not going to work. So those are two obvious ones. I think the bigger one is The importance – and this applies to historical moments, it applies in business, it applies everywhere – trying to take as big a picture of any decision that you have, get as much information and as big a picture as you can because you never know what the long-term unintended consequences will be. Great Britain and France, they had this master plan for imperial domination of the Middle East and really of most of the world. And they'd had that since really the 1840s when they started to put aside their historic enmity. And then, uh-oh, here comes Germany. And Germany upends everything, first in, the, in 1870 with its defeat of France in the Franco-Prussian War, then with its colonial meddling culminating ultimately in World War I. But the British still had their, their plans specific to the Middle East. They've got the Sykes-Picot Agreement. They've got the earlier discussions between Hussein and um, Commissioner McMahon. And then here come the... Arabs saying, no, we actually mean what we say when we want Arab nationalism, look at as many factors as you can, business, again, personal life, family, wherever you are, and don't get so focused in on your goal that you miss potential very serious long-term unintended consequences, because those are some of the moments that absolutely shape and drive the history that we're still living through even today.
0: Thank you for joining us in our discussion of the Arab Revolt. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. You can help us improve this podcast by going to org and hitting the support button.
1: And now a word from our number one fan. Thanks and see you next week.